<laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see you. Um, happy 4th of July weekend. Um, thank you for spending that, uh, this weekend with us. I'm so glad you're here. My name is John. I serve as one of the pastors here at Access. Um, I thought I'd take a moment to read some of the uh, responses people gave in the chat box. I got one, so I'll read that, all right? Um, Josh Yip, thanks for participating. Josh said, went uh, canyoneering with some students once. They had us jump from a cliff face into the water. Would never have done that if a student who wanted to do it didn't have a partner. Um, so yeah, he kind of got controlled into doing that. I wonder in the audience if you, had, you heard an especially good one that you wanted to share. We can take a couple or one or... I know you don't usually do this, but it would be great to have some feedback and uh, participation. Anyone want to share one that you heard that was kind of funny or that you wanted to share with the group? Maybe not, but uh, <laughs> I thought I'd ask. Yeah? All right. Go ahead. Roller coasters. Yeah. I mean, who would get on something that's just falling free fall, right? That's, that's scary, and so sometimes it takes the convincing of friends or family members. Uh, so probably the truth is, uh, all of us can identify certain things that we've done at some point in our lives that maybe we w- wouldn't have done if it was just like up to ourselves. Um, and whether the idea was a good one or a bad one, usually the consequences of those things aren't like too egregious or serious. But I do think uh, there are some times in our lives that we all face when we do something that actually uh, contradicts It actually goes against our principles, the things that we believe in, the things that we say we believe in and care about. And when that happens, that's a far more serious thing, isn't it? And to me, when I think about examples like that, when someone does something that contradicts what they they actually believe, uh, the most tragic example in my mind that comes, comes to me is the example of Pontius Pilate. If you remember him, he He actually hands over Jesus to be crucified, even though he himself finds Jesus to be innocent. Uh, It's, to me, this this terrible example of hypocrisy. But I think for most of us, you know, we don't necessarily look up to Pontius Pilate. And that's not who we're talking about today in our series, Failing Forward. We're going to be actually looking at someone that Many of us, at least if we've grown up in the church, we, we have elevated this person. We have looked up to them. They've stood out to us as this pillar of the faith. And that person is the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's called a pillar of the church. And he does exactly what we just mentioned. Um, but it might not be what you expect. So um, let's take a moment to pray. Let's ask God to continue to lead us and guide us this morning. Gracious God, thank you so much for this day, for this weekend that we can gather together um, in freedom to worship you. We take that privilege. We do not take that privilege lightly. And so thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for being with us. And I, along with uh, the people who are gathered here, we posture ourselves before you and we ask you to speak to us, God. To help us to hear from your spirit what exactly you want to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been in this series called Failing Forward. And we've been looking at the missteps, the mistakes, the failures of people uh, in the Bible, many of whom we actually often lift up as heroes of the faith. And we do this not to cast judgment, but because we can actually, if we are humble enough, 
see bits and pieces of our own stories in their stories, right? We can see how the way they fail is reflective of how we often fail. And our hope through this series is to learn from these mistakes and failures so that we might fail forward. So last week, we looked at that time Moses uh, hit a rock twice instead of speaking to it as God had commanded, and how the consequences of that, right, the consequences of him sort of reverting into this sort of lackadaisical spirituality, this sort of been there, done that, been there, done that, this sort of autopilot resulted in him not actually leading the people into the promised land. This week, we're going to look at that time that the apostle Peter really messed up. Uh, if you're familiar with Peter's story, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, okay, so uh, Pastor John is probably going to talk about that time that Peter denied Jesus three times. That was really bad. And yeah, that was really bad. But that's not what I'm referring to this morning. Oh, so you're like, oh, okay then. Uh, you're probably going to talk about the time Jesus rebuked Peter for telling him, hey, there's no way you're going to the cross. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Man, Peter totally got owned <laughs> by Jesus. Uh, and yeah, uh, uh, Jesus did own Peter, but that's not what I'm referring to this morning either. Uh, so you're probably thinking, oh, okay, uh, oh, yeah, so you're going to talk about that time Peter, like, chopped the soldier's ear off trying to defend him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you're like, man, Peter's aim was awful. And yes, his aim was awful, but that's also not what I'm referring to. So maybe you're thinking, okay, what else did Peter do? Uh, are you going to talk about that time where uh, Peter tried to walk on water, then he started sinking because he started to look around him? That is funny. Yeah, that's a really funny incident. I like that story a lot. And yeah, Peter should have kept his eyes on Jesus the whole time. That would have prevented him from sinking. But that's not what I'm talking about either. As you can see, this is just a cursory glance at Peter's life. He messed up a lot in his life. But all of these incidents occur before Jesus, uh, Peter's great transformation. All of these events in Peter's life, all these missteps, all these mistakes happened before Jesus rose again. All of these incidents, incidents were indicative of the old Peter. You know, the brash, the impulsive, the extremely passionate, put foot in mouth, overzealous guy. But that was all before Jesus rose again. Because after Jesus rose again, something really dramatic changed in Peter. After Jesus rose again, he restored Peter. Uh, and he transformed him. And he called him to be one of the most influential leaders in the early church. The new Peter was filled with God's Holy Spirit, and he spoke with power. He did miraculous things in the name of Jesus. But this new Peter wasn't a perfect Peter. And I think that's really, really important for us to hear this morning. This is really good news. Because in our transformation journey, as you and I seek to change, even after we accept Christ, even when we've gone all in for Jesus, there are going to be times when we fall flat on our face. There are going to be times when we don't live up to what we have proclaimed with our mouths. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a time when Peter could be convinced 
to do something that he flatly disagreed with and how he played the part of a hypocrite. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2. And this is what it says. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Uh, This letter to the Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. So he was the new kid on the block. Even more so, he was formerly a vehement persecutor of people who followed Jesus. And so, a lot of Christians knew him by reputation, and it wasn't a good one. They knew him as the guy that's trying to kill us and put us in jail. And so, they were rightly extremely suspicious of Paul when Paul said, hey, I'm on your team now. They didn't believe it. They didn't know what to make of that. Um, And so, the fact that James, Peter, and John gave Paul the nod of approval was absolutely critical these three were like the OG of like the disciples, right? And so everyone, everyone looked up to them and they respected them. And if Paul, if they said that Paul was okay, then he must be okay. Now in the next verses, Paul is going to recount an incident where Peter or Cephas visits him in Antioch. And according to Paul, Peter plays the part of a hypocrite. So let's see. Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, just a real quick note. uh, In the world of biblical scholars, there is some debate about exactly when this incident happens, whether it's before or after the Jerusalem Council in 50 AD. Um, My personal take is that it happens before, but regardless, the implications are the same. I just wanted to make that note uh, for those of you who are studying uh, along and trying to dive into the scriptures. So what's going on in these verses? When I read this, at first glance, I was thinking, this sounds like like a a trope of like, uh, you know, like a teenage teenage movie on Netflix or something. You know, that that familiar uh, scene that plays out in a lot of movies, right? There's like, there's the misfits, right, who sit at the misfit table at the school cafeteria. That would be like the Gentiles. Uh, Then there's, you know, like this one cool kid who has a good heart, and he's trying to like, bridge the gap, and so he actually befriends the misfits, and he sits with them during lunch, uh, and that would be, that would be Peter. Uh, but then, you know, the other cool kids come back from summer vacation, and they look down on and make fun of the misfits. So this would be the circumcision group that comes from James. And then once they come back, all of a sudden Peter's like, 
oh, I don't know them. They're lame. Yeah, yeah. And he stops sitting with them. And the misfits are like, what just happened? You know, like, Peter, why are you doing that to us? And then there's Paul. You know, he doesn't belong to the cool group or the misfit group. He's kind of like a cool misfit. Uh, and he can kind of just transcend all those categories. And he's not afraid of the cool group, so he stands up to them. Uh, he stands up to Peter in the hallway, and then they just throw down, right? That's, that's kind of what I was imagining happening in this scene. And so it, it begs the question, is this just about, like, a bunch of cliques? You know, is this just a bunch of, like, you know, high school musical or, like, you know, I don't know, mean girls being played out in the Bible? Uh, and it's not, okay? It's not. To understand what's at stake, to understand why Paul the new guy would, would have the audacity to call out the hypocrisy of one of the most influential leaders in the church. To understand why this is even recorded in the words of Scripture, uh, there are three things, there are three things that we have to call out and pay attention to. Okay, the first thing is this. We need to call out the Jewish and Gentile divide that existed. So in particular, in the Jewish mindset, it was sort of like a two-party world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were Jews and Gentiles. And owing in part because of all that the Jewish people had gone through. So remember, you know, we talked about the centuries of slavery in Egypt, followed by the desert wandering, followed by conquests and exile uh, at the hands of foreign nations that would invade them and then uh, deport them. The people had developed a sort of us-against-the-world uh, mindset. Now, their law and their prophets would continually remind them of their original and holy calling, that they were supposed to be a light to and for the whole world. But like all groups, like all groups, the human tendency, our human tendency, is to form clear lines that separate the in-group from the out-group, all right? We all know this dynamic. Membership in the in-group means abiding by a certain code, how you dress, what you eat, certain customs, rituals, and beliefs, even the music you listen to. Youth, you just learned about the purity codes which govern the Jewish people. The purity codes were one way of distinguishing who was in and who was out. So when Paul mentions the circumcision group, that was another major sign of who was in and who was out. And so there's a whole history that goes with circumcision. But the point I want to make this morning is that there were certain um, identity markers. There were certain markers if you were part of the in-group, right? You talked a way, you, you did certain things, you thought a certain way. Things you did and didn't do if you were part of that in-group. So in the present case, Jews did not share table fellowship with Gentiles. Because Gentiles ate food considered religiously unclean, off-limits if you were a Jew. So this is why it was so scandalous that Jesus would eat meals and share meals with sinners. He was crossing a major divide from in-group to outgroup. And so Peter, by eating with the Gentiles, he was crossing a very thick, thick line that separated who was in and who was out. So the first thing we need to call out is the presence of this Jewish and Gentile divide. 
The second thing we want to call out is what we might call gospel contextualization. Now, whether or not you've heard that phrase or not doesn't matter, but here's what it means and why it's important. The message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, was that membership in God's family wasn't going to be based on keeping the law. It wasn't going to be based on abiding by these certain identity markers, but through a common faith in Jesus. That through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, that Jesus was forming this new humanity, a new family that brought together Jew and Gentile. That Gentiles in particular who were once far off were now being brought near. They were going to be included This was the radical message of Jesus, that Jew and Gentile will become one. They will become one family. They will become the beloved community of God. That was a very compelling and beautiful and powerful message. It's the basis of our community life together. It's the basis of why we try to pursue racial reconciliation and racial justice. It's why we try to learn how to be, strive for unity amidst difference and diversity. It gives us the compelling basis for our life together. It's a beautiful thing, but this new family that God has created through the gospel, all of us know that family is messy, right? When we have family reunions and family get-togethers, that gets really messy sometimes. So have you ever had someone uh, join uh, your team or, or an organization or even your family and suddenly they introduce sort of like a new way of doing things and you're thinking to yourself, but we've always done it this way. We've always done it this way. Who are you? The gospel challenges them to wrestle with the difference between what was sacred and what was sacred cows. As Gentiles became followers of Jesus and as Jews began to follow Jesus as their Messiah, they were having to figure out in real time how Jewish do the Gentiles who follow Jesus need to become? And how Jewish do Jewish Christians need to stay? So one of the big questions which they hotly debated in the the book of Acts and throughout the letters of the New Testament is, Do Gentiles who follow Jesus need to get circumcised? That was like one of the critical markers of being part of the in-group. Do they need to do that in addition to having faith in Jesus? And eventually they would decide, no, they don't. But another question they wrestled with is, do we still need to follow the dietary and other purity laws? Can Jewish Christians eat the food and share fellowship with Gentile Christians Get this, who are eating things that we have historically found repulsive, right? Over centuries of saying that is unclean. You develop a certain aversion to it, and now all of a sudden it's like, what do we do? What do we do when we're sitting together and they offer us this food that we never would would otherwise eat? Is the gospel powerful enough to bridge that gap? So those are the questions of gospel contextualization. And the third thing that we need to call out is Peter's vision related to these very questions. Acts 10 records a very specific, uh, miraculous, and supernatural vision which Peter receives about clean and unclean animals. 
uh, in this dream, in this vision, he sees a large sheet of animals, and God commands him to rise, kill, and eat. But in his dream, Peter protests. That sounds like Peter, right? Like, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, no, God, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And then God poignantly says to Peter, do not call impure anything that I have called clean. And then all of a sudden, Peter realizes that this is a metaphor for what God is doing through the gospel to unite Jewish and Gentile people. He had once seen food and people as unclean. But now God was saying to them, hey, I'm doing something new here. Those people that you used to reject are now, I've included them through faith in Jesus. God gave Peter this message specifically, right, personally, miraculously, and unmistakably. So there could be no doubting in Peter's mind what God's will was here. All right, so these three things help us to understand Galatians chapter 2. There's this huge divide between Jew and Gentile. The gospel bridged that divide through Jesus, but it led to some very practical and testy questions regarding what identity markers needed to be preserved. And Peter received a personalized vision from God uh, that the divide had been knocked down. So let's go back with all these things in mind to Galatians chapter 2. And so no, this wasn't just about cliques fighting each other. What was at stake was the integrity of the gospel. Peter knew that the gospel included the Gentiles. Peter knew that the work of Christ fulfilled the law so that it was no longer necessary to follow the old dietary laws. Peter understood that Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything, that it offered life to all, regardless of ethnicity or race religious heritage. Peter knew that his Gentile brothers and sisters were just that, brothers and sisters. They were family, not enemies. So, because he knew this, he enjoyed meals with them. He ate with them. He ate what they ate. He was their friend And this was a huge statement because Peter was the guy. He was the guy, and he was sitting with them. He was part of their community. But then something changed. All of a sudden, when a group of people who were still advocating Jewish customs and practices came around and putting pressure on Peter to do that, what did Peter do? He balked. Centuries of culture and habits and beliefs don't just change instantly. But Peter should have known better. He got a personalized supernatural vision from God. And yet Peter gave in to the pressure of the old guard. And so he distanced himself from the Gentile Christians. And this, of course, just ticks Paul off crazy because Peter's behavior called into question the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for salvation. 
It called into question the inclusion of the Gentiles into this new family that God was forming in Jesus. And so even Peter, even Peter, y'all, the great apostle, the pillar of the church, played the part of a hypocrite. Now, this word hypocrite, um, it kind of has a sting to it that other labels doesn't. Because it's one thing if you do something dumb because you think it's the right thing to do, because you don't know better, so you do that thing, and maybe the consequences are bad, but at least your heart was in the right place. And so when someone does something like that, we can sort of empathize with them. We can understand where they're coming from. But when a person knows better, or worse, when they actually proclaim with their mouth, hey, this is what I believe, this is what I stand for, and they do the exact opposite thing, we look at that person differently, don't we? We judge them differently. Because that's not only the action that you did, there's a dishonesty there. There's this two-facedness there. There's a lack of integrity. That's hypocrisy. And none of us wants to be a hypocrite. Even Peter fell into it. And so do we. So do we. So do I. Uh, as a pastor, uh, I've married a lot of couples now. Uh, some of them are sitting in this room. Some of you are here. I've taught you know, marriage preparation classes, done premarital counseling. I've done all these things. I'll tell you, honestly, I feel the dissonance. I feel the gap between the kind of husband I actually am and the kind of husband I encourage men to be and which I believe God calls me to be. I feel that dissonance and that hypocrisy. Every day, I pray that God would help me be the best father and husband that I can be. I do believe this to be my most important priority. And yet... You know, when one of my kids comes asking me to play Legos with them or do this or that, often I'll put Facebook ahead of that request or my work or my email or just what, gardening, whatever it is. I will, uh, I will fail to live up to that value and conviction. Uh, over the last few years, uh, God has convicted me more and more that the Christian's call Right? That if we follow Jesus, I, I believe we are called to the work of anti-racism. That this is what the gospel, not, not because this is what cultures, you know, or some segments of culture are saying is important, but because the gospel, because of what God has done to bridge the divide, I believe this is part of our calling. We are called to be anti-racist. We are called to seek racial re reconciliation and to seek racial justice because Je this is what Jesus would be about. And yet... I have to admit, there are some times when I still walk along the street and instinctively, in my mind or in my heart, I can feel my body tense up when I am in the presence of certain groups of people. There's a hypocrisy there. Years ago, when I was in seminary, I became convinced that the Bible teaches us, right? After studying it uh, thoroughly, I became convinced that the Bible calls both men and women to be leaders in the home and the church. That God has gifted women to offer gifts of leadership. 
to society, to the home, to the church, not just men, as I had always believed or been taught. And while I made this switch theologically years ago, I still find myself today falling into patterns of patriarchy. I still do that. These are just some of the ways that I can recognize I play the part of a hypocrite. And so I acknowledge it, I repent, and I commit to doing better. Friends, what about you? You know, what patterns of hypocrisy might you have fallen into? Whether deliberately or underblade by accident, or you just kind of slipped into a certain pattern, but you know it fails to live up to what you believe and what you think is right. The focus of failing forward isn't about us never being a hypocrite again. I don't think that's realistic. It's not a question of if, but when. When we fall into these patterns, what will we do? How will we respond? Because on the one hand, you can fall into hypocrisy, and we all do, and you could refuse to acknowledge it. Then when someone tries to put up a mirror, you say, no, 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 that's not me. You come up with all sorts of reasons and excuses that that's not the case. And that just makes things far worse, friends. I know that. It just makes it far worse. Or the much better option is we can, with courage and humility, face it we can choose to acknowledge it. Like, yeah, that's true. Uh, in faith walking, a discipleship process that we uh, have integrated into our ministries here at Access, many of us have learned that when we fail to live according to our principles, when we fail to keep our word, when we play the part of a hypocrite, there are some very specific things we can do in response. That we can acknowledge the mess Right? We can begin by just acknowledging, yeah, I did screw up. I, I continue to do that thing that I know is not right. We can acknowledge the mess. And then we can get present to the impact. And that means you go to the people that that, that mess affects and you ask them, hey, how did my actions affect you? And then you listen. And that stings. It can sting when they say, I was really disappointed when you said you show up and you didn't. And that sting actually helps because it helps us see that our actions matter, our words matter, our behaviors matter. And then as we get present to the impact, then we give a heartfelt apology. So we don't just start by like, oh, I'm sorry that you feel bad. I'm sorry, right? We start with, I messed up. Can you tell me how that impacted you? I'm deeply sorry. And then we repress. We fail forward. We get back up and we say, and I'm going to commit to doing better even if that means I'm going to fall again. I said that last week we'll look for the grace notes in each of these stories. So what's the grace note in this story? Is this, that although Peter succumbed to the pressure of the circumcision group, the gospel did not. The gospel did not. And that's represented at the table, the communion table. A table where Jesus was 100% committed 
to sharing the table with people whom he knew would betray him, with sharing the table with people he knew would let him down, would fail to live to their ideals and their verbal commitments. And yet he loved them and he served them to the very end. A table where Jew and Gentile alike can find life together, can find fellowship, reunion, find home together. So I'm going to invite us to read these words from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare to take the communion elements this morning. Would you join me in uh, reading? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So I'm going to invite you to take the next few minutes or moments to do just this, to examine your heart, to examine your thought life to examine your way of life. And then after a few minutes, feel free to come to the table, pick up a communion juice and wafer, uh, and then return to you, your seat. You could take that whenever you're ready to do that, individually, uh, with your friends, with people sitting next to you, with your family. Okay? We'll take that on our own once you come up. So feel free to come up, take it, return to your seats. We ask you to uh, leave your mask on before or after, just for the safety of everyone here. Uh, those of you who are at home, uh, when you are ready, feel free to take the elements that you have prepared. And remember that Jesus has called you his own. At Access, we invite anyone who has placed their trust in Jesus to come forward. You don't need to be baptized. You, need, you don't need to have all the answers. But you do need to acknowledge your need, your need for a savior. You need to acknowledge your own hypocrisy and to place your trust in Jesus, whatever you know of who Jesus is, to place your trust in him. So perhaps Christ is inviting you today to take that step of faith. And if that's you, I invite you to come and take communion as well. So let's take a few moments to just quietly reflect. And then when you are ready, feel free to come up. So wonderful is Jesus.
Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. A love that while we were yet sinners, <laughs> while we were yet hypocrites, you loved us and you went to the cross for us. And through faith in you, Jew and Gentile can be made one. What awesome news. What an awesome message, God. And we pray that you would help us, the church, to be faithful to live this out into the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, it was great to be with you today. Um, let's stand and say our sending prayer. Here, come here, bud. You want to come here? Why don't you come here? All right, let's say this together. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us towards joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen. If you're new or visiting, we'd love to just welcome you uh, at the tables outside at our meet and greet. Um, our weekly in-person gatherings will resume weekly uh, August 1st, so we really hope to see you. Uh, thanks again for being here. Uh, grace and peace to you.